Welcome spooks and spirits, ghouls and ghosts. Take a seat around the campfire. But beware, this podcast is haunted. Jeff, 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 Jeff. Kate, are you ready? I am ready. Are you ready for a new episode? I am ready. So this is a continuation, part B, really. Part B? Who says that? Part two of a two-parter. What if I like letters? Okay, what if stuff. eat my entire ass? I'm saying part B. This is my episode. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Part A was delicious in its desperate sadness. Thank you. That's a weird way to say that, but yeah. I mean, everybody really enjoyed it. It did seem to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, so. it was a great episode. You should be particularly proud of it. Thank you. Uh, I'm really pleased about the unknown nature of today's story. Mm. So we are actually going to kick it away. I did this interview without you. Um, yeah, I know nothing about this. I know. I'm super excited for you to hear. And you also won't tell me. Yes, because I believe in secrets. Okay. <laughs> so this story um, is going to touch on a lot of the same uh, subjects as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Mm-hmm. Still fun to say. <laughs> Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. I, yes. Thank you for validating me, folks, uh, at home, because I it's just, yeah, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. It's just fun it's to say. It's fun to say. I'm That's, sorry. This one is not as tasty in the mouth. Okay. It's called the Italian Hall Disaster. Italian Hall Disaster. Okay. And it is uh, strictly an Upper Michigan story. This takes place in Calumet, Michigan. Ooh, I have heard of that. It's a lovely little town, very mm-hmm. historic, very Victorian. Uh, it was very much a boom town for mm-hmm. the mining age, copper mining in the early nineteen in the oh, late eighteen hundreds, yeah, early nineteen hundreds. Yeah. And this disaster itself uh, is going to be introduced to us uh, by a gentleman named Steve Lado. Mm-hmm. Steve is a lawyer, but he's also a YouTube personality, a speaker, a teacher. He's got a lot of things under his belt. Um, in fact, you can find out more about him at www.lato, L-E-H-T-O, mm-hmm. law, com. You can also learn quite a great deal from his YouTube channel. He has 233,000 subscribers. Okay. Yeah. We are playing with the big dogs now. We are. <laughs> Some of, some of your followers. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, Mr. Leto wrote uh, Lemon Law. He's done a lot with consumer protection in the last 30 years. Oh. Uh, his um, initial book about the Lemon Law is called The Lemon Law Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, he also was a teacher um, at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. He taught there for 10 years, so the man knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, but he also is quoted in a number of places, not only about the law, but about history. Mm. Uh, he's been quoted by the New York Times the BBC, CNN, Good Morning America, lots of other places. All right. Uh, like I said, he's got a YouTube channel. It's mm-hmm. just Steve Lato, S-T-E-V-E, Lato, L-E-H-T-O. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you, know, you get a lot of his information about um, his legal side, but he's also written a number of history books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of those include uh, The Great American Jetpack. Nice. <laughs> right? <laughs> a book called Michigan's Columbus, which I have already purchased. Ooh. <laughs> Um, American Murder House. Which I have in my Kindle collection. I, I really, this is spoil a peek behind the curtain of how we do this, right. but like I was fully watching you do this research and, uh, yeah, I have that book. I was like, oh, that looks familiar. But like, of course you have that Murder book. Murder Houses. Like, Murder Houses is so on brand for you. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to Mr. Leto about those. Yeah, but that's not today. <laughs> he also wrote, uh, the Chrysler turbine car with none other than Jay fucking Leno. Okay. We are one removed now from <gasps> Jay Leno. Oh my God. I know. I'm sorry. I'm very excited about this. So this is just a great interview. I'm really excited to share it all with you. Um, And it mostly pertains to the book of his that I first found called Death's Door. 
And Death's Door is all about the Italian Hall disaster in Mm -hmm. wonderful details. And it even uh, in the second edition goes so far as to potentially solve... (gasps) It's a a mystery? More than 100-year-old mystery. It is justice that is not served. Ooh. Even a little. I'm going to have to listen to Even at all. You're going to be mad. Okay. And I hope the rest of you are just writhing in indignation, too, because what happens here is messed up. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Leto is doing his best to set something to rights. So without further ado, here we go. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome. My name is Kate. This is our half of this podcast is Haunted, and I'm joined today by Steve Lato. Uh, Steve is a lawyer as well as a historian, and he is going to be talking to us about the Italian Hall disaster, a labor dispute dating back to 1913. Uh, Steve, before we get started, could you tell me a little bit about your career? Well, um, I have an undergraduate degree in history, and then I got a law degree. I've been practicing law for 30 years now, um, but shortly after I got out of law school, I kind of got bored, and so I started researching things that interested me, and I wrote a couple of history books, and one of the earlier books I wrote was about the Italian Hall disaster, and my family's from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and so my last name, Leto, is Finnish, and in the Finnish community, the Italian Hall disaster is a very, very well-known event. I tell people it's kind of like our Titanic, where everyone who is of Finnish descent knows about the Italian Hall disaster. And I'd always heard about it growing up, but it was one of those things that at family gatherings and whatnot, like the older folks, when they'd mentioned it, they'd often talk quieter, they'd slow down, and they'd often shift into Finnish, which they would do so the kids couldn't understand them. And so it got me really interested in that. So I started researching it, and then I wound up writing a book called Death's Door about it. So a death store um, uh, is available on Amazon.com. Is Can people pick up copies anywhere else? Uh, it's pretty much available in any local bookstore. It's uh, published by a Michigan publisher, but um, it is uh, nationally distributed by several different distributors. So um, it, it, it's, it's been doing quite well, actually, over these years. So. I believe it, especially since we just hit the centennial of this event uh, in fairly recent history, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, my my idea of time is a little compressed by the pandemic. Uh, 1913 to 2013 was the centennial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for that centennial, the book made a little bit of a surge forward, right? It was selected for uh, well, some attention. Yeah, I actually uh, published the original book, I think it was in 2008 when it came out, maybe? Two, seven or eight. And then what happened was um, I would speak and do presentations about the Italian Hall, And I'd meet people and people started bringing me stuff and mailing me stuff and pointing stuff out to me. And I found a bunch of stuff out after the first book came out. Nothing that really changed the story, but a lot of stuff that added to the story. And so I actually contacted my publisher and said, look, I go, the centennial is coming up. Could we put out an updated edition? And my publisher said, sure. And so I added about 120 pages. (laughs) So the book is now thicker, but I think the book has more detail in it. And then also I was contacted by a movie producer who does documentaries for PBS. And he said, you don't know me, but I read Death's Door, and I'd really like to do a documentary about the Italian Hall disaster for PBS and try to get it on television nationally in time for the centennial. And so in 2011, 2012, we actually uh, shot. I, I went up north. We did some shooting up there. We also shot some in New York City. And then uh, the documentary came out called Red Metal, and that was on PBS in 2013 nationally. And um, it's it's out there still. You can find it. But um, that helped get the word out because, unfortunately, the Italian Hall disaster happening in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in 1913 
Um, it was a, a blip on the radar, really, elsewhere. It was reported in you know cities outside of Michigan, but within just months, it kind of fell away and people kind of forgot about it, except for people in Michigan, for the most part. Absolutely. Uh, as I was a, a kind of a teacher, I, I taught for a museum before we started um, in software. And the history of this story is not taught. I actually didn't learn this story until my museum did a feature specifically on Michigan copper and some of the amazing uh, things about copper country in Michigan. Uh, so I wrote up a panel for this disaster and it really touched my heart. I've never forgotten about it once I learned about it. So I'm excited to share that story with people today. Uh, I will put a trigger warning out there for everybody that um, this is a story that does feature quite a bit of child death. Um, it is very hard to listen to. We all know I'm going to cry. We know it. <laughs> um, but we do have uh, a heck of a story for you today. Before we get started on that, could I ask you, what is the connection between history and lawyer? That seems like such a leap sometimes. Well, you know, it's interesting because all lawyers do is we write and we argue. <laughs> and and historians do a lot of writing and they sometimes do some arguing. And yes. it's, you know, so I got the undergraduate degree in history because it was something that fascinated me. And I thought, well, I need to get good grades if I want to get into law school. So I, I, I got the degree in history. And then one of the things that lawyers also do is we often talk about finding case precedent. So you want to find out how courts ruled on something. And you, in the old days before the computers could do this in 30 seconds, you had to go into libraries and dig through old law books and look up old cases. And in many respects, that is a form of history. And you'd find, I mean, I would find myself flipping through, you know, case histories from the 1800s, just reading them for fun. And so there is a, a real parallel between what lawyers do and what historians do. And I, I've known a bunch of lawyers whose undergraduate degrees were in history like mine. And it was the same reason. They were just fascinated at the idea of doing research, whether it's for history or for law. It's, it's very similar. That's very cool. Um, I'm I'm so excited about this. I always kind of had a fantasy about going to law school, but I thought my interests uh, wouldn't mesh. And now I might not be going, but at least I feel a little vindicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I am I am definitely dilly dallying, so I can put off the tears, but that's fine. Let's just do it. Um, could you tell us a little bit? Start setting up the stage for this disaster. What is going on in the country and locally in northern Michigan? Well, here's the thing. The Italian Hall disaster happened on Christmas Eve 1913, and the entire event probably took place in about 15, 20 minutes. But to really understand what happened at that moment, you have to back up and take a big overview of the context. And the context was a strike. There was a labor strike in the copper country. And so back up and understand that in 1912 and 1913, there were copper mines in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, in the Keweenaw Peninsula, way up north, where anybody who wanted a job could get a job. Zero percent unemployment. There were people just flooding into the area to get jobs. You could get a job in the Calumet Heckle Mine with no skills whatsoever. You didn't even have to speak English. So there are guys fresh off the boat would show up. They spoke Croatian. They spoke, you know, uh, Finnish. They spoke whatever it was, and they could get jobs. But there were difficult jobs working underground. And the problem with copper mining is hard rock mining deep, deep underground. Some of the mines they were working in were a mile deep. They dig a, a, a mine a mile down, spend eight or ten hours underground hammering away at rocks, and then come back up. 
in the wintertime, it was not uncommon for a guy to go underground before the sun came up and come back up before the sun, after the sun had gone down. Never seeing daylight for months and months and months, making three, four, five dollars a day at most, usually closer to three bucks a day. So the problem is that the mining was so difficult, it was dangerous. And in 1912, on average, there's one man dying per week in the mines in that area. One that man per number. week. Yes. They averaged 52, 55 deaths a year, year in and year out. And so what happened was they, the mines, thought that that was just the cost of doing business. So the mines up there owned everything. They owned the land. They built the houses. They built new uh, libraries. They built the hospitals, which sounds good until you realize that if you had a company house that you're renting from the company and they're deducting your rent from, from your payroll, when you got killed in the mine, they would send the guy to your house to kick your widow out so they could put another miner in the house. And they're like, sorry, your husband got killed. And there was no such thing as a wrongful death case. There was no OSHA. There was no workman's comp. There was nothing. You couldn't even sue back then for the, for the death of your husband in the mines because they said, well, it's assumption of the risk. And that was the law in 1912, 1913. So right around that time, there were organized unions out west, the Western Federation of Miners, and they had organized some of the miners in the districts out west, and they came to the QAnon and said, look, there's all these miners here. Let's organize them into a union and see if we can't get them safer working conditions, better wages, and maybe a shorter day, because they're working 10, 12 hours a day. And so they actually got the union together, and they formed a union, and they actually got it done pretty quickly. And one of the reasons was that these guys had come to America from some countries where labor was recognized as having the right to organize. But you have to understand that in America, big businesses had always thought that unions were socialist, which is kind of like calling somebody in the 60s a commie, okay? And so calling somebody a socialist in the 1912, 1913 era was a, was a bad thing. So when the union came in- It's not great today. In, yeah, it's not either, but but it's <laughs> it was worse back then, believe it or not. Um, and so when these, when these union organizers came in, the uh, mines actually at first thought there's no way they can organize this disparate group of people because there's Hungarians, there's Croatians, there's Italians. They can't even, it's like the Tower of Babel. But the union organizers are very, very smart. A guy named Charles Moyer came in and he got people from different countries to speak different languages. And they would hold rallies and he'd speak in English and another guy would get up and translate the speech into Italian. Someone else would get up into Croatian. And they got the union together to such a point that they actually managed to get them to do a strike vote in the summer of 1913. So they asked the union members two questions. One is, do you authorize us, the Western Federation of Miners, to go to mine management and negotiate on your behalf, collective bargaining? And if they refuse to recognize us, do you authorize a strike? And overwhelmingly, the workers said yes and yes. So in the summer of 1913, Western Federation of Miners sent letters to all the mines, and there was like seven or eight major mines, but the Calumet and Hecla was one, the Quincy was another, and they sent letters to mine managers saying, we are writing to you on behalf of the Western Federation of Miners, we represent your workers, we want to bargain with you. And the mines said, no, we won't even talk to you, you've got no right to, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate with workers one-on-one, -on -one. we will not work with you. And all of the mines steadfastly said, we refuse to recognize the union. And at that point, they went out on strike. And the strike began. And the amazing thing is that on the first day of the strike, 
mine production went to zero because all of the miners walked out very, very successfully, shut the mines down, and the mine managers are kind of looking around, going, okay, what do we do now? But unfortunately, things would get ugly as they often did back then, but that was the setting, and that was the fact that there was a, a mine strike in all the mines in the entire copper country, and that was the big industry up there. Now, let me ask just for a second, Michigan Copper, uh, you don't hear much about it anymore. Most of those mines are largely drowned, uh, uh, dried up, I believe, correct? Yes. Well, they're not dried up. Uh, ironically, they're flooded. <laughs> but they, they stopped producing copper. And so what happened was most of the mines became financially unproductive. That is, it cost more to get the copper out of the ground than it was worth getting it out. So okay. they finally abandoned them. They filled with water. The Calumet and Hecla, though, is actually operating as late as 1968. And the White Pine Mine, which is down over towards Aunt Noggin, was actually operating some a little bit after that. But the peak production period of the mines was between like 1880 and like 1920, uh, interestingly enough. And so Calumet, for instance, at one point in time was a boom town. There's an opera house up there. It's still there. Uh, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people in town. There were brothels and bars and churches and restaurants. You name it. It was a boom town. And you go there now, I think the population is 600. Wow. And it's they don't like they don't like this, but it's actually a ghost town. You know, sure. you, they, they don't want to call it that, but but it is. Um, I've seen the statistics. I believe the number of people in the Lakeview Cemetery outnumber the people in town. I'm sure that's correct. Yeah. Uh, do you know at its height, uh, that, that early 1900s area, uh, how much copper were they pulling out roughly a day? And it's okay if you don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I can tell you that Michigan copper, Michigan was the number one producer of copper in the world. And most people, even people in Michigan, don't realize this, that Michigan copper was unusual because copper that had been found in Europe and Asia was brought out of the ground in the form of ore. But in Michigan, you can, to this day, I've, I've been walking the Upper Peninsula last summer, and you look down, and there's a chunk of copper on the ground called native copper. And copper didn't form like that anywhere else on Earth until they found it in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Now, they have found some native copper down in South America, but up until that point, it was unheard of. So when Douglas Houghton came to the area in 1840 and examined the copper, he said, number one, this native copper is mind-blowing because he was a geologist. He goes, I've never seen this before. I've heard of it, never seen it. But number two, there was copper ore. They wound up mining the copper ore also. And the copper ore in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was at a ratio that was like three or four times better than the best stuff they had in Europe. And Houghton predicted in 1841, he said, as soon as they can get the money up here to start making these mines big, they're going to start making a lot of money. And he was right, and they did. So it was the copper central of the world. Like That's Absolutely. where the world's copper came from, was the UP of Michigan. Well, and if you think about it, at that time, uh, copper, which is the best conductor of electricity, was being widely turned into product for the first time in history as they started electrifying houses and businesses and streetcars and things like that. And so we had this amazing, amazing resource in the Upper Peninsula, uh, completely worth losing Ohio for, uh, if you're oh, yeah. familiar with the Toledo War. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, who wants Ohio? <laughs> but copper was used in other things. They used copper for pots, for instance, cook, you know, cookware. They used copper in shipbuilding, believe it or not. They would actually line ships with copper because that was actually something that you could do that, you know, because copper can be pounded into sheets yes. and, and it's very, very malleable. Uh, it corrodes differently than, like, say, iron does. 
And so it's it's a very, very useful product. But yeah, you're right. The biggest thing that really pulled it was the electrification of America, the wiring of homes, the running of wires between cities uh, and, and trolleys and all the motors and all different things that use copper. Uh, it, it exploded at the beginning of the 20th century. Purest in the world. It's it's actually one of the things I'm very proud about for being a Milwaukee girl. Uh, I'm very proud to be a Michigander now. So uh, yeah. I do get a little excited about our copper and I'm sorry, that's nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got this strike. The, these men of all these different cultural backgrounds uh, are unified really by, you know, their working conditions. Can you tell me a little bit about those working conditions uh, other than, you know, they started before the sunrise, before the sun rose and they ended after the sunset. What were the age of these men? I assume it was all men. The men under, yeah, people underground were men. Um, and if the women had jobs, they had jobs like working as like, you know, uh, maids and so on. But the bulk of it was men. The, the, the mining was extremely grueling and dangerous. It just depended on which job you had. So if you showed up at Calumet and Hecla in the summer or the spring of 1913 said, I want a job, and you said it in another language, they would actually send you down and have you be a trammer. And they had these big carts, and they'd fill them with rock, and you had to push that all the way to the end of the shaft and dump it into a skip that would take it up the surface. Manually? You'd then drag the cart back, they fill it back up, and all day long you're just pushing this cart back and forth. And that was the entry-level job at the mines was a trammer. If you could work your way up, you could be one of the guys who worked one of the big um, pneumatic drills. And the big drills they ran were really, really heavy and really, really dangerous, and they were loud. A lot of these guys would go deaf from the operating conditions. A lot of them would be hit by rocks flying off because they didn't have things like safety goggles and so on, so they, they, guys get blinded. Uh, I mentioned earlier that one man a, a week would die in the copper country from the mines. They said for every man who died, there'd be 10 more serious injuries. So guys would lose limbs, guys would be blinded, and, and to them, that was nothing. I actually saw a newspaper headline on like page 17 of the newspaper, and it goes, another Finlander died in the mine today. Doesn't even give his name, because it, it, back then it was so commonplace, number one, and number two, nobody cared. It's like, oh, another guy died. It's just, you know, go get his widow out of the house, because we got to put another person in that house. And so these guys were doing this backbreaking labor for three bucks a day was average. And later on, after Is the whole strike... I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Is that three dollars okay. a day in 1913 money or three dollars a day today? No, 1913 money. So three bucks a day. Uh, but but to put it in perspective, Henry Ford in 1914 was paying five bucks a day to work above ground on an assembly line, and that's where a lot of those workers went. Is they went down to Detroit and got a job working in a factory. But um, the three bucks a day is the guys who are pushing the trams. Interestingly enough, the Department of Labor sent an investigation team up the copper country to investigate the causes of the strike. And they discovered a really strange thing in the mines. They said that all of these trammers were paid by how much rock they moved, and it was measured by weight. And yet not a single mine in the copper country had a scale on the premises. So what would happen is you'd push your rock up there, and a foreman would look at it and go, oh, 900 pounds, eh, 800 pounds. And you'd eyeball it. And, and that's just how they did it. And you might not get this right away because you go, well, the, yeah, obviously that's uh, uh, calling for abuse, right? Worse, if the guy didn't like you, 500 pounds. He <sighs> likes you, 1,000 pounds. And that's one of the things that happened is there were guys who showed up at the mines 
And a lot of it would be racial because he's, a lot of them didn't speak English. So you're the Croatian trammer and you're dumping your rock. You think the guy who's a boss is ripping you off. So you give him a dirty look. Next thing you know, 400 pounds, 300 pounds. And what, what can you do? You, you can't complain to anybody because that guy's your boss. And so one of the things that they wanted when they sent the letter saying we would like to negotiate on behalf of the union is they said, we basically want a way to air our grievances. And that's one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is that people who talk about the Italian Hall disaster will often talk about the strike. And they'll often say that the strikers were striking because they just wanted more money and, and or, or, you know, they, they were they didn't want new technology in the mine or something like that. In reality, if you read the letter, it simply says we want shorter hours, better wages, and a way to air our grievances. And that's what they're getting at. And the idea that the guy is eyeballing a tram full of rock and he's guessing how much it weighs, you understand where the problem is. And when the Department of Labor came in in 1914 and asked them, well, where's the scale? They go, what scale? What do you mean, what scale? Miners don't use scales. We eyeball it. We tell you how much it looks like it weighs. And that's what they did. I'll be honest. Uh, so I grew up in the Benton Harbor area, and I used to work for a uh, pumpkin, you know, where Chicago people would come over and buy yeah. a pumpkin and buy some bombs. Yeah. It was cute. And uh, we weighed the pumpkins every time. I'm happy to look at a bear's outfit as a Wisconsin girl and a Benton Harbor girl. I'm happy to look at a bear's outfit and be like, that's a 10-pound pumpkin on a 6-pound pumpkin. Yeah. But even we <laughs> couldn't get away with that on a 2-bit pumpkin farm. Yeah, yeah. But that just shows you how much power the mines had in that area at that time. Nobody questioned that method to the point where that's how all the mines did it. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That is utterly ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I can, mm, I'm getting mad. <laughs> Sorry, the sad. I'll get sad too. It's all it's okay. all coming today, guys. Um, so we've got this horrible situation. The miners are not ask, actually asking for that much. What we we've started this strike. You said it was the summer of 1913. How early in the summer are we talking? Because if we're getting all the way to Christmas, this is a very long strike. Well, it was a very long strike, and that's the problem. And also in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the summers are fairly short. So they sent the letter. The letters got rejected. Some of them got returned. Some of them just no response. But but the mines never officially responded. Jim McNaughton, who was the head of Kelly Met and Hecla, actually said to his friends and stuff that if I acknowledge the letter, then I'm admitting they've got a right to exist, referring to the union. And so he actually said, I will never negotiate with the union ever. And he also would meet with the other general managers of the mines, and they would hold weekly meetings. He's basically doing it to rally the troops going, look, we are not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And so what they wound up doing was bringing in strike breakers and bringing in scabs. So they would advertise in New York and Chicago and say, look, we can give you a job in Michigan Three bucks a day, no skill necessary, no language skills necessary. Just show up and we'll give you a job. And they started bringing in people by the train loads. And the interesting thing is some of them would take the job. Some of them, when they realize they're coming into a strike zone, would turn right around and go back. And there's a famous uh, story from the Daily Mining Gazette out of Hancock or Houghton where there's a headline and it said that a, trunk, uh, a train load of Hungarians had shown up in Houghton. And when they saw the pickets, had gotten right back in the train and headed back out again. And so it was it was a, a, a lot of confusion. But they did manage to bring in enough scabs for replacement labor to actually get the mines operating, not at full capacity, but enough to keep them going and also to threaten the workers like, hey, look, 
we don't need you guys. And that was basically the standoff. We'll run at lower capacity if we have to, but we're never bringing you guys back if you insist on having a union. Now, so, at that time, these guys were also living in union-provided houses, going to union-provided you know, medical facilities. I'm sorry, not union. Forgive me, the opposite. They were going to mine. They were living in mine-owned houses and going yeah. to mine-owned hospitals. How did that affect their living situations while they were on strike? Well, interestingly enough, the union went to court on behalf of the workers and got the local judge to issue an injunction saying that no one could be evicted during the strike. But when the strike ended, they'd have to pay all their back their back rent. So they did get to stay in their homes, but everyone knew there was going to be a reckoning somewhere down the road. And so that's, you know, that's what was going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that is, so we start, we've started this, we're dealing with this strike. Summer has come. You're right. The growing season in the Upper Peninsula is very short. One of the things that we used to tell our second graders is that if you lived in the Upper Peninsula, um, one of the reasons that people took to the mines is because you didn't have the opportunities to grow so many of the things that we can grow here in the Lower Peninsula, for example, right. corn. Yeah. If you grow corn, which is a staple food and it preserves very well, uh, the corn is kind of like those mini baby corn that you get in Chinese yeah. food. <laughs> yeah. So it just doesn't work. <laughs> um, so these people were really, they knew that they were taking on something that was going to put them in a very difficult place. Yeah. And they still decided to do it because it was that important. Yeah. And so the most important figure to arise during the strike is a woman named Annie Clements. And Big Annie, as she was nicknamed, was six foot four. And she I was actually she was actually very pretty. And what you might not guess is that nowadays we'd understand this, but back then people might not have understood this. But when you have a pretty woman who is six foot four and is outspoken, she loved talking to the press. She loved being photographed, doing things that women weren't supposed to do back then. She got a flagpole that was 10 feet long, got the largest American flag she could hang from it. And she would lead the strikers parades around during the strike. And so they wouldn't pick it in the traditional sense back then because the mines had so many different locations. There'd be different shaft houses, different smelters, different buildings scattered all over the place. So instead what they would do is they would go out and, and they would call it parade. And they'd go out and parade up and down the street right in the middle of town, right near where the shift changes would have been to discourage people from going to work. So if you were going to go to work and sneak off and say, I'm, I'm done with the strike, I'm going to go to work. You had to walk through a parade of hundreds of guys who are on strike being led by Annie Clements, like I said, six foot four with a 10 foot flagpole marching out front. And it was kind of funny because the press locally hated her. They hated her because they thought this woman's doing something that women aren't supposed to do. You're supposed to get back in your house, clean your kitchen and have babies. Meanwhile, she's doing this and the journalists from out, out of state love her. They're taking pictures of her. They're interviewing her. She, get she got arrested a whole bunch of times, but she actually became the face of the strike, ironically, because she's a woman. She wasn't a minor. Her husband was a minor. And we know very little about him because he kind of kept his head down. And I think he was shorter than her, which might have been a problem also. But Annie Clements became like the heroine of the strike. And it was, it was amazing because she was uh, of Croatian descent and um, she's from Calumet. She's married to a minor, and she very, very early on said, you know something, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get in front of these parades and lead them. And so you can find photographs of a big, long parade of striking miners, 
and there's a woman up front with this huge flagpole. At one point in time, Jim McNaughton, who ran the biggest mine in the area, called local government and said, look, guys, uh, bring in the National Guard. We need the National Guard up here. So they, they appealed to Lansing, Governor Ferris, and said, would you please send up the National Guard because we've got these out-of-control strikers. And the National Guard showed up, and they're like, nobody's out of control. They're, they're parading. They're marching around. They're carrying flags. The National Guard was standing around with very little to do. And at one point in time, Jim McNaughton got mad. And he's like, why don't you guys go out and stop them? Stop them from doing what they're doing. There's a famous confrontation where the marchers were coming one way and the National Guard was coming the other way. And they stopped face to face right in the middle of Main Street in Calumet. And Big Annie's got her big old American flag and is a National Guardsman on a horse. And he pulls his saber out and he whacks at her and he actually hits her on the hand and gets her to drop her American flag. And he actually cut her finger. And there was a journalist nearby who quoted her as saying, you can run me through with that saber, but if this flag won't protect me, nothing will. And what's interesting about it was they backed off. The National Guard backed off and eventually they left because they had nothing to do up there. There was an investigation conducted by the head of the National Guard, and he brought in the guy who swung his saber. And he goes, let me get this straight. You were whacking at a woman with your saber in front of witnesses? Like, what's wrong with you? But interestingly enough, because of the way things were back then, he didn't hurt Annie. She actually uh, got her finger cut. I've got a photograph in my book of her with it. She's got a, a big smile on her face and a bandaged hand. But they actually grilled the National Guardsman for about half an hour about why he let somebody drop an American flag. Like he made someone drop an American flag. They're more worried about the American flag than they were about the woman that he was swinging a saber at in front of witnesses in broad daylight. So it was a whole different world up there. But Big Annie was the one who, as she led these strikes, and they realized fall is coming, winter is coming, the snow is coming. And there's no end in sight. Somebody said, well, what about the kids? Because Christmas is coming. And so Big Annie actually said, I know something. Let's have a party for the children of the striking miners. And so there's a building in Calumet called the Italian Hall. It's a two-story building. The lower floor is a couple businesses. There's a saloon called Viro Saloon on one side and a greater Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company or A&P store on the other side. And then above that was the big ballroom. There was a stage and a big dance area. There was some seats up front attached to the floor, like uh, auditorium seating. And there's a big, tall staircase that you'd climb to get up there. And she said, let's on Christmas Eve have a party for our children, a Christmas Eve party. Now, one thing that people don't often think about is that Christmas Eve is the entire day before Christmas. And the party itself was actually scheduled for the afternoon. It's a children's party. So they announced that basically children of the minors in town can show up at the Italian Hall with their parents and we're going to have a party for them, a Christmas Eve party, because, you know, the adults have their problems, but the kids shouldn't have any problems. And so that's how we get the Italian Hall on Christmas Eve. And it was Big Annie who organized that event at the Italian Hall. I know it's probably going to don't like it. <laughs> I, I just find... It's just so reprehensible. So we, we're setting the stage. We've got this event. How many people came to this event? I mean, like you said, it was a boom town. So there yeah. was a substantial population available. Oh, the, the auditorium was packed. 
And the estimates were that there may have been 500, 600 people in there. Jeez. And there's a, another problem with that, and that is that there was a disproportionate number of children. So it was not uncommon for a mother and father to bring their four kids along with their four next-door neighbor's kids. And so we don't have a real good snapshot of the population of who is in the hall at the moment, but it appears that there were a, a large number of children compared to the number of adults up there. At one point in time early on, they were actually checking union cards at the door to make sure you were a union member. But that stopped about an hour into the party because it got so packed inside the hall. Now, remember, this is in December in Calumet, so it's cold out. So people are coming in wearing overcoats, scarves, gloves, mittens, hats, all that stuff. And then once you got inside the hall, on stage, there's a piano. There was a Christmas tree. And at one point in time, a woman was playing the piano. She's playing Christmas carols and things of that nature. They're getting people to sing. Uh, they're singing in different languages. Because remember, there's all these people, different languages up there. And then somewhere along the line, it got to be so crowded. And some people were saying, you know, if we start handing out gifts right now, we can get some of this crowd to disperse. Because once some of the kids get these gifts, then they and their families can go home. So they actually announced and said, hey, everybody who wants to can come up here. The kids can all come up here, cross the stage, and Santa Claus will give you something. And earlier in the last few days, Big Annie had gone into several local towns and asked people to donate things. They donated things like candy or mittens or scarves and stuff they could give to little kids. And so they had a Santa Claus up on stage, and the kids would line up by – there's a set of stairs on one side of the stage – go across, get something from Santa Claus, and then go across the other side and, and exit down. And as that was happening, somebody came in from the outside, up the stairs. There's a, a little landing at the top of the stairs. There's a set of doors that swing into the hall. The man stepped through those doors and yelled very, very loudly in the English language the word fire. And he yelled it twice, and he looked around to make sure that everybody heard it, and then he bolted back down those stairs. And the problem when you yell fire in a crowded theater is that people will repeat it. People panic. People tend to not stop and go, gee, I wonder if there really is a fire. There's a guy yelling fire. So when he yells fire, people start repeating it. People are repeating it in other languages. There was several hearings into what happened at the Italian Hall. So we have a lot of this from sworn testimony. And there were people near the stage who said, I didn't hear the guy at the door who yelled fire. But someone near me repeated it. And so the cry of fire spreads across the hall. And in fact, there was a kitchen beneath the stage. And photographs taken the next morning by a local photographer showed that the kitchen was in total upheaval because the cry of fire was even transmitted down there. And people were panicking all throughout the building. And so one of the things about human nature is that if you are in a building and someone says, quick, get out, most people will try to get out the way they came in. Nowadays, we've got signs where there's fire exit, fire exit. They didn't have those back then. And there was actually only one obvious way out of the Italian hall, and that was down the same stairs that you came up. There were two fire ladders in the back of the building that no one knew about, and a fire escape on the side of the building that was not marked, and no one knew about it. So everyone tries to get down those stairs that they came in. The problem is... It's a 14-foot rise between the first story and the second story of the building as a single flight of stairs. And somebody tripped and fell. And remember that there's tons of kids in this group. So as people are coming around the blind corner at the top of the stairs, somebody trips and falls. 
people are being pushed from behind and they can't stop. And next thing you know, there's a pileup on the stairs. And the pileup on the stairs happened very, very quickly. But interestingly, some people got out. The first few people down the stairs ran to the doors, got out in the street, turned around and looked, and then no one else came after them. And that's because the pileup on the stairs happened and clogged the staircase. And so when all the screaming and yelling could be heard, somebody went and called in a fire alarm. There's a fire box, box 45, that's right around the corner from the Italian hall. Someone called in the fire alarm. The volunteer fire department shows up very, very quickly. It's not that far, the fire hall to the Italian hall. It's, you know, a couple hundred yards, basically. And they show up, and there's no fire. They open the doors up, and there's all these people crushed on the staircase, but they can't get them out from the bottom. Well, the firemen know that you can go up the fire escape on the side of the building. So they ran up the fire escape, came inside the building, told everyone, calm down, there's no fire, no fire. And they start pulling people off of the pile in the stairs. And there were probably 100, 150 people piled up in the stairs, and not all of them got killed, but 73 people did die. And of the 73 who died, 60 were children, and more than half were Finnish. And the interesting thing is that there were people in that pile who survived who were stuck there for hours as they untangled the mess. And one of the guys who testified at one of the upcoming hearings actually said that he was going down the stairs and he got stuck. And he couldn't move, and he was pinned up against the wall. He didn't know what was pinning him up against the wall, but his feet weren't touching the ground anymore. He thought that the stairway had collapsed because of the weight of the people. And then as they pulled people off, he realized, oh, no, it's just a pileup of people. So the people on top weren't dead, but the people underneath were. And so at first they had to pull the people off, and they were laying them out inside the hall. There were people who got laid down who revived. And there were also people that they brought in that they thought survived who passed away. And so... They eventually got the stairs cleared, and then the word had gotten out in the community that there's a tragedy at the Italian Hall. A lot of people from nearby came over, crowding around, and they eventually had to realize that there's 73 people here who have perished, 60 of them children. And now there's a medical examiner, back then they called him a coroner, but there's a coroner whose job it is to fill out the death certificates for all these people, but there's no place that they could actually take 73 victims. So they actually carried them all over to the village hall, which is attached to the opera house. And there was a upstairs room there and they laid them out on tables for identification. And there are more stories about families and things of that nature. For instance, there was a family called the Mahelsich family. They had four boys who went to the hall that night. Only one came home. Three of them died in those stairs. There was the Claridge sisters Three sisters, all three of them died on those stairs. And there was at least one other family, uh, the Hakenen boys, where three of them all died on those stairs. There was also a mother and a father who died. And in one of the rare bright spots of all of this, the baby survived. And the story is that they actually found the baby being held by the parents over the crush. Whether we know that's true or not, we don't know. But the fact is that the boy's name was Oscar. He survived. But his parents did not. And actually, he was adopted by his next-door neighbors who were there that night who survived. So in a, in a community of that size, when 73 people die, everybody knew somebody who was there, and everybody seemingly was related to somebody who was there. And like I said, 73 people died. 60 of them were children. And that 
is really what makes this. I mean, you hear about numbers, you know, a plane crash, 100 people die, boat goes down, 100 people die, train crash, whatever. This is, uh, you know, 73, but but 60 of them being children is what's so tragic. And on Christmas Eve, and by a guy who yelled fire just to break the party up because there was no fire. I mean, it's 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 mass murder. Yeah, I you know I thought I I thought I knew this story. I you guys all know I'm crying already. Of course I am, and I didn't have this level of detail that you've been able to capture. And oh, there's no going back on it. Uh, this is incredibly painful. I mean, even though it's been, you know, 108 years, 60 children, that is two second grade classes. And th there's a few other things that were rather notable about this. There was a photographer in town. And keep in mind that in 1913, photography was not as common as it would become shortly thereafter. And a photographer named William Nara, who was a Finn, who had a photography studio in Calumet, actually brought one of those big glass plate cameras out and photographed different things around this. And he recognized very early on that this was going to be a big event in the Finnish community. And so he photographed the bodies of the victims at, at, at the village hall. And there's a couple famous photographs of rows of children laid out dead. And it's shocking to see those photographs. And I, when I do presentations about the Italian hall, I often put that one photograph up on this, on the, screen and I always apologize for it and I always keep it brief but then I also say if he hadn't taken this photograph a lot of people wouldn't understand the gravity of the story and that photograph that he took was published there were there were news organizations that published that photograph and said here is a, a group of children who died at the Italian Hall in Calumet Michigan when someone falsely yelled fire at a crowded theater and so if he hadn't taken those pictures, we wouldn't have that record. And so it's it's very important that he did that. But he had, like I said, one of those big glass plate cameras that you see where the guy's got to put the big glass plate in it and put his head underneath that shroud and holds up the thing, goes poof, and it flashes. And he actually shot, I think, 23 photographs uh, of the cemetery, of the funeral, of, of the Italian Hall itself, of the victims, of other things around this event. And he actually printed up uh, those stereo opticon cards, the stereo opticon cards, yes. and distributed them. And I've actually seen those in antique shops. I've got I've got a set of them myself. And it's interesting because he has underneath each description in English and Finnish, describing what's in the scene because he recognized how important that was to Finnish community because more than half the victims were Finns. Wow, I mean that's it's a great deal of foresight. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm just like. Oh, ugh. Um, let's, can we take kind of an emotional break for a second and bring this into a slightly more objective and like less ouchy area? Could we talk about some of the legalities here? Like, for example, uh, I was recently reading, uh, given the, the current political climate and things that are going on in our country today, mm -hmm. um, people are very interested in what is covered by free speech right. and, um, one of the instances that frequently comes up is shouting fire in a crowded theater. Yeah. Could you tell me about the legality of do, of taking that action and, and where it comes from? And, you know, if this was inspired by the Italian hall disaster? Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court justice in 1919, wrote an opinion in a case called Schenck versus U.S., 
that you have the right to free speech only so far as you could never yell fire in a crowded theater falsely. And I'm, I'm not saying it exactly the way he said it, but the point is he said there are limits to free speech. And he gives the example that you can't falsely yell fire in a crowded theater. He wrote that in 1919. And the Italian Hall disaster did make national headlines. It was in the front page of the New York Times, Christmas Day, 1913. So I think there's a good chance that he'd been inspired by that. There's a debate about that. There's a professor who actually wrote a very lengthy law review article about it. In fact, I'm in one of his footnotes. And, and he's not sure that we can actually say this. Holmes didn't say which example he was using. But I think that this is certainly the most profound example uh, there were other examples of people yelling fire in crowded places and bad things happening. But 73 with 60 children on Christmas Eve would certainly seem to be the, the, the exemplar of what can go wrong when somebody does that. The other thing that's important to catch here, uh, and we'll talk about the legalities in a second also, but I want to talk about one other thing, is that the newspaper coverage of the Italian Hall disaster is fascinating to study because there were local newspapers but the local newspapers had picked their sides before the strike. So there was a local newspaper called Tuomis, which is a Finnish newspaper. Tuomis means worker in Finnish. And that was a socialist newspaper. There was the Daily Mining Gazette, which published in English and was in the hip pocket of the mines. They were so pro-mine, it was a joke. So Tuomis, on their headline, in Finnish, wrote 83 murdered. They put that on the first edition of the paper. They put up, they said it was actual murder. The Daily Mining Gazette wrote, 80 Parish and Christmas Eve tragedy, false cry of fire the cause, but down below they blame Moyer, the head of the union, because they said that somehow he's doing this to somehow profit and call attention to the strikers, and it's somehow his fault. And as you got further away from Calumet, the coverage got actually a little more accurate. The Detroit News had decent coverage of it. The Associated Press picked up the story, and it was broadcast widely around the country. It even made the papers like in Australia and in England. I was kind of surprised to find that out, but um, it may not have been front page there, but it was front page New York Times above the fold Christmas Day 1913. So a lot of people knew about it back then. But of course, what happened was the story kind of fell off the radar as other news happens. And that 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 tends to be that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you factor in all the other things that were going on in the world at that point in time we're gearing up for world war one shipping is getting insane and yeah it's a it's a fascinating time to look at it's actually jen's favorite time period in history so bringing it back to to law and lawyer you know what do we need to consider here with regard to free speech like especially when you factor in that this was a union busting activity well, interestingly enough, the guy who yelled fire got away with it. And I think I know did. his name. I think I know his name. And I, in my book, I actually explain why I think I know who he, who he was. But the guy got away with it. And that, to me, when I often give my speech, I often start by saying the man who yelled fire got away with it. And the question is, how did it get to the point where you go into a children's fire, a children's party, yell fire, and get away with it? That's, that's the crazy part. But the guy did get away with it because— Mine management and the local government, which was in the hip pocket of mine management, was so anti-union that even though this guy had done this heinous thing, they said, well, he still just did it at the union, so who cares? And so the <laughs> weird part is, is that there are legal things you're supposed to do when someone dies. There's things you're supposed to do if someone dies violently, and there's things you're supposed to do if people may have died at the hands of another, which would be called homicide. 
So the medical examiner now is the title, but back then it was called the coroner. And in Calumet in 1913, there was a coroner named William Fisher. William Fisher had no medical degree, but that's okay because he used to be a judge with no law degree. So he's one of these guys who get elected to positions as unclear if he had any ability to do them. But the coroner had one job and one job only, and that was to determine the cause of death of somebody who died in a medically unattended fashion. So if you died in a hospital, your doctor can sign your death certificate. If you died at home and no one was there, so the coroner's job is to determine if people died by accident, homicide, or suicide. Those are your three choices. And the death certificates from 1913 were issued by the state, and anybody who died, the coroner's job was to figure out how they died and check one of those three boxes, in essence. So they held an inquest. For three days, they took testimony, and they did such a horrible job of it. If you read the coroner's inquest, you realize he wasn't trying to figure out what actually happened. He was actually trying to exonerate the mine management and the strike breakers. And so they called in people to testify who weren't there. When they did call in like Big Annie, they badgered her and basically tried to make it look like it's her fault. Uh, And then at the end of the three days of hearings, they came to the conclusion that they couldn't figure out what happened. And on all 73 death certificates, they wrote the exact same language. And it basically says, uh, died as a result of a stampede, cry of fire, no fire, all jammed up in the stairway, 73 killed, okay? But no mention of homicide, suicide, or accident. And so these weren't suicides. If someone yelled fire recklessly and caused the death of others, that would be homicide. If somebody yelled fire and they honestly thought there was a fire, but they were mistaken, that could be considered an accident. But the coroner, despite the fact he could spend three days botching an inquest, could not bring himself to write the word accident on any of these death certificates. So all 73 of them are deficient. And I was so amazed by this. I actually went up on more than one occasion to different locations. I actually have copies of all 73 death certificates. I actually went and found them, got copies, was so baffled by this that I actually went to the Houghton County Courthouse where they keep the records. And there's a book called The Return of Deaths. And back then, if somebody died, the local person would fill out a death certificate, they'd take it to the county, the county would record it in the book of deaths, and they would send the original down to Lansing. Lansing would then hang on to it, where in future years it would get microfilmed and I'd get a copy of it. But the point is the return of deaths even has a column, suicide, homicide, or accident, left blank for all 73 of them. So they actually didn't even do the one job they had, which was simply assign a cause of death here. And they didn't even do that. It's it's like nothing mattered. It, you right. know, the decision was already made. Yeah, yeah. And so the sad part is that uh, they had a funeral, uh, and almost all of them were buried on the same day at the Lakeview Cemetery outside of Calumet, about three miles outside of town. Huge, huge procession. They had funerals uh, happening simultaneously in the four or five different big churches in town. There's a church called the Pine Street Apostolic Lutheran Church, which has a curved um, uh, the, the front, the, the stage where the pastor stands, uh, it has a, a curved section to it. And that's in some of the photographs that William Nara took. And he took photographs showing there's like 13 caskets laid around the front of the stage there. And of the 13, I think 11 or 10 of them are white and the other ones are black. And I've had people say, oh, the whites are women, the blacks are men. No, 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 no. The whites are children. The blacks are adult. 
And that's because of the 73 who passed away, 60 of them were children. And so you see a picture of all these white coffins, and there's one black one or two black ones. And they timed it so that all the funeral services ended at roughly the same time. They all went out in the street, and they walked three miles to the cemetery. And most of the uh, children's coffins are being carried on the shoulders of, of people in the procession. There were some adult coffins being carried in horse-drawn carriages, and there was even one automobile being used. And it was kind of interesting for 1913. Uh, the local paper mentioned it kind of derisively, like, oh, they even had to use an automobile because they ran out of hearses and the adults' caskets were too heavy to be carried by people. So there's these photographs of this big, long procession snaking out to Lakeview Cemetery. And the other thing is that in December, trying to dig in the ground is extremely difficult. And um, I've known people who passed away in the Upper Peninsula in the wintertime. And they often hold the funerals in the spring because they wait for the ground to thaw. Well, guess what? We've got thousands of unemployed hard rock miners who are all on strike. And so they all went out and cleared the spots and dug big trench graves. And William Nara took photographs of these. And I often put the photograph up on the screen when I'm giving a, a presentation. And I say, here's a mass grave. And people look at it, and it's kind of shocking because we're used to seeing that in like Central Europe during like a genocide or something. And I say there were at least three of these and maybe as many as five of these at the Lakeview Cemetery, Calumet, Michigan, 1913, because they had to bury all of these people in such a short period of time that they simply dug these big mass graves. Interestingly, there's a split in the community because there's Protestants and there's Catholics. And even today, the cemetery has got a split where the Catholics are buried on one side, the Protestants are buried on another. So if you go to the Lakeview Cemetery today, you can actually find where the Protestants are buried on one side and the Catholics are buried on the other. Most of them are together, not all of them. And you can find the graves for almost all of these people. But 73 of them buried out at the Lakeview Cemetery. And it's amazing because the news coverage followed all the way through the, the strike and the Italian Hall disaster and the funerals. And for instance, Clarence Darrow, the famous lawyer uh, and friend of labor, was asked if he would come to Calumet and speak at the graveside at the cemetery for the funerals. And he actually turned them down and said, I'm scared that if I show up, they'll, they'll kill me. And I mean, that's how crazy things were in Calumet. Clarence Darrow actually wrote that to a friend of his and said, I, I can't go. I'd love to go and speak to show my solidarity, but I'm scared they'll kill me. And his fear was, was actually well-founded because Charles Moyer, when he heard about the Italian Hall disaster, was at his hotel room in Hancock at a place called the Scott Hotel, which is still there, by the way. And he started sending out telegrams to anybody who would listen, to the mayor, the governor, the president. And, he, and he's sending out telegrams saying, there's been a disaster in Calumet, and I think it's strike-related. Could you please investigate? And the local sheriff and a bunch of thugs came to his hotel room, beat on the door till he opened it up, and said, you've got to stop sending those telegrams. And he said, all I'm doing is asking for an investigation. And the sheriff said, if you don't stop, I can't protect you, which, by the way, is the biggest understatement of all time, because that sheriff couldn't do anything. The door closed. Three minutes later, they kicked the door down. A, they beat up Charles Moyer, and they shot him, but the bullet lodged in his neck and didn't kill him. They dragged him out of the hotel, across the Houghton-Hancock Bridge, over to a train station, and threw him on a train with a one-way ticket to Chicago. And they said, if you ever come back here, we'll kill you. 
All of this was documented by the local newspapers. The Daily Mining Gazette ran an article about how Charles Moyer had been um, sent out of town. Uh, he had been deported. He was kidnapped in front of like 50 witnesses. And the thing about it is, is that kidnapping in, in many jurisdictions is the same as murder. You can get life in prison for kidnapping, especially when it's armed and you shoot the guy in the back of the head. And they published the names of the kidnappers in the paper, and there was no prosecutions ever. Nobody has ever prosecuted for it. So Charles Moyer was in a hospital bed, famous photographs of this, where he's recovering from the gunshot wound to the back of his head. And he eventually did go back to Calumet. But one of the things that I think they did that is they wanted to get him out of town for fear that he's going to turn the funerals into a labor event. And even though he wasn't there, it did get turned into a bit of a labor event. And there were people from the mines who were trying to turn this into a PR event that was good for them. And they were going around trying to hand out charity to the families of victims. And they were refusing the charity. And there's famous examples of guys having doors slammed in their faces by starving families with dead children going, we don't want your money. Get out of here. And at the graveside, one of the lawyers for the union said, we don't want charity. We want justice. And that made a lot of the headlines around the country is that they weren't looking for charity. They want justice. Problem is they never got justice. But the event of the Italian Hall disaster actually did do one thing, and that is it drew attention back to the strike and back to the unions, because the strike had become old news by Christmas of 1913. It had dragged on for six months. And the strike would eventually end in April with the union just basically disbanding in that area. And the mines would bring people back and say, look, if you want to come back work for us, tear up your union card and we'll rehire you. And as a concession, they did give them a slightly shorter work day and a slight raise. So they did go back to work, the people who stuck around. But the Italian Hall disaster made this strike something that people would remember, despite the fact that the strike was lost by the workers. I'm sorry. I, I, I find myself without words. I am sickened by every single part of this. They tried to execute a man and they kidnapped him in broad daylight. Right. And no justice has ever served. Right. Would you like to tell us who you think is the perp? That's fun well, to say. Interestingly enough, as I've gone through every single scrap of paper I can find about the Italian Hall disaster, I've gone through all the newspaper articles, all the sworn testimony, all the affidavits, all the court files, everything that survives, I've studied in great detail. And digging through all of this stuff, I found the most interesting little story. In the papers that were published the next day, a couple papers mentioned that a strike breaker had been found in the stairway caught in the crush of people. Now, strike breakers were not welcome at the Italian Hall, and a strike breaker would not have gone to the Christmas party at the Italian Hall. And yet there was a strike breaker who got pulled out of the pile. And a reporter asked him, what were you doing in there? And he said, oh, I was walking by the Italian Hall and I heard the cry of fire. So I went up the stairs and I started trying to hold people back and uh, I got pushed down the stairs and I got caught. And the paper actually said he was a hero because he tried to save people. And then he disappears from the story. So when they call witnesses to speak at the coroner's inquest, 
the man's not there. When they call witnesses to speak to the subcommittee that came from Washington, D.C., the man's not there. The man disappears. But the man was an employee of the strike-breaking agency that sent people into town to bust up the strike. And I believe that he was the man who ran in, yelled fire, and as people rushed by him, he got caught on the stairs. And I think that's why he disappears from the story. And there's no other explanation because his story doesn't make any sense. There's no way he made it up the stairs while other people are coming down the stairs. And, and why would you tell that story? And then also, if the story is true, he's a hero. Why wouldn't you celebrate the guy instead of spiriting him out of town and making him disappear? So that's who I think did it. Revolting. Utterly yes. revolting. I, yes. But excellent work on your part. Well, um, and here's, here's the other thing I have to point out, is that I had my first book was subtitled Michigan's Largest Mass Murder. And we changed the subtitle for the second book to emphasize the Italian Hall and the strike. I still believe it was mass murder, but I got a lot of flack from that because people say, well, did the guy intend to kill anybody? And I always say, well, I'm using the term murder in the broadest sense of, like, say, homicide. And by that, I mean the guy probably did not think, I'm going to go kill 73 people. There, there's no way you could plan that. Now, he did think, I'm going to go do something reckless. I'm going to go do something that's going to endanger people. I'm going to go do something crazy. And he knew he could get away with it because of who he worked for. But he wasn't trying to kill people. But in this day and age and that day and age, if you do something reckless with a reckless disregard for human life and people die as a result, trust me, you're going up for a manner of homicide. It's a question of what type of homicide, but it's homicide nonetheless. Absolutely. And and rightly so. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry. I'm like, <laughs> I'm normally a lot more like sparky and spiky and yeah, let's talk about it. And like yeah. this story just guts me. It's christmas eve you know yeah so let's let's start to wrap up i i would love to talk just briefly can you tell us where to find more of your books you said you've written 15 something like that yeah i say something well, like that because i've actually ghost written a couple for other people but no way yeah um but all my books are on amazon um a couple of them are out of print but they're they're all out there um i've, I've written some michigan history books a book about douglas houghton I've written some car books, a book about Tucker, a book about the turbine car. I wrote a book called American Murder Houses. Uh, so my, my, my interests are all over the place. The only thing I've not published yet is a novel. Just give me a little time on that, but no novels yet. So Will you keep us posted when that novel comes out so we can promote it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Please do. Um, so in the meantime, uh, everybody, if you are looking to hear more from Steve, uh, we can you can find him quickly and easily on youtube.com uh, using the same background that I will have pictures of in our group. Uh, we, there are lots of uh, his writings up on amazon.com. I actually found you initially at the Calumet uh, Historical Society website. Oh, okay. uh, that's I started there. I always you always start with a museum when you start your research. And so right. they turned me on to you and then I found you again referenced in the Wikipedia page. Uh, regarding the disaster. So I knew and I had one, to reach out to you. One thing I'll tell you is that if you ever get a chance and you've never been to Calumet, you've got to go. It's in the Upper Peninsula. It's in the center of the Cunha Peninsula. It's way, way up north for people like to say from Detroit. But it's such a neat town. Go there. You can go to the site where the Italian Hall was. The building got knocked down, but they saved the arch. And so the arch is in the middle of a little park. There's benches there. There's signage there that explain what happens. I have to tell you that there was a sign there for years that said that the disaster was the fault of doors that opened the wrong way. And that's not true. 
And during my research, I found a photograph of the doors opening the correct way taken Christmas morning by William Nara that had not been published in 99 years. And so I contacted some people in Lansing and they said, well, if the sign's wrong, we'll fix it. I wrote a report for them that was five pages with about 55 pages of exhibits. And they let me rewrite the marker. And so on the centennial that summer of 2013, they actually replaced the marker. They had a ceremony and I actually got to write both sides of the sign. So now the sign just doesn't mention the doors. The doors are irrelevant. But interestingly, as time has gone by, there are people who don't like talking about the Italian Hall. They don't want to remember it. They want to bury it. They want to forget about it. Um, I think my job as a historian is to make sure that things are not forgotten. We need to remember things, especially important things. And the important thing about the Italian Hall is that somebody yelled fire trying to break up a party to hurt the union, and it killed 73 people. That's the story. And people who say, oh, no, it was the fault of doors that opened the wrong way, makes it very flippant, but also it blames it on an inanimate object. It's the fault of the doors. And the amount of evidence we have about the doors opening the correct way is immense. I even went and tracked down the origin of the story about them opening the wrong way. It wasn't put into print until 1943, 30 years after the fact. So the doors never opened the wrong way. That's just a, a, a false fact. So I would run into this after my first book came out on this, where people would say, but Steve, the historical marker says you're wrong. <laughs> now I get to tell them, go, go look now. It says I'm right. I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a much... You say I, I pulled a quote from you a couple minutes ago, and it says uh, these people went from door to door. The mind tried to make it into a, a positive thing to make it a PR spin for them. And the people closed the doors and said, we don't want charity. We want justice. And as you've told us, justice does not come to these people in the court of law. But I hope that with these stories and with your book and with that documentary, Red Metal, uh, which again is available on YouTube, we are offering just a little bit of justice to these people and children, especially the children who died, because it was a union-busting activity. This was about strikes. This was about money. And it was absolutely mass murder. Yeah. And, you know, among other things, uh, Woody Guthrie wrote the song 1913 Massacre about it, uh, which helped keep them alive a little bit. And every year on Christmas Eve, they hold a little ceremony out at the Italian Hall site. Uh, and there are people up there who make it you know, at their job to make sure this isn't forgotten. And I go to the cemetery up there at least once a year, every summer. And I, I know where the various gravesites are and I go visit them all. And this has become one of those things. I've written a lot of books and occasionally someone will remind me and say, Steve, you wrote a book about jetpacks. And I'm like, oh, that's right, I did. I, I, I forgot about <laughs> it. I forgot, I, I literally forget about that book. Um, it's a good book nonetheless, but I, I forget about it. But The Italian Hall is actually the second book I ever wrote, Death's Door. And in my studio, I know a podcast, people can't see this, but in my studio to my left is a chair from the Italian Hall that was there the night of the disaster. When the hall got torn down, a friend of mine grabbed that chair, held on to it, and gave it to me later. And I have this chair, and it's been in my studio ever since I got it, and it's going to stay there. People don't sit in it. It sits there. It's a reminder to me. Um, I can see a little my, piece of it in the corner. Yeah, and in my living room, I've got on the wall one of the ribbons that the members of the of the society would wear in their parades. And behind me on my shelf, I've got a block of wood from the hall. And the Italian Hall is one of those things that, despite the fact I've written so many books since then, this actually is the story that that is most important to me. 
And if, if you said, Steve, of all the stuff you've studied, if there's something that you could help people remember, what would it be? And it would be the Italian Hall disaster. You're absolutely correct. I, I am so deeply touched. I feel much the same. Okay. Well, Steve, I'm going to go cry into my pillow for a while. Okay. <laughs> this was a real pleasure. A very, well, very you. real pleasure. I, I, um, as you can imagine, I can talk about this all night long. So. Oh, I would let you. I would, yeah. I'm like watching the clock. I'm like, Jen's going to yell at me. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening to that. Um, that episode had me in absolute tears through that entire interview. Yeah. So I'm so glad that we could share it. Um, so bring you up to what, 10 episodes? <laughs> The number that I've cried in? Yeah, you're a crier. We've done like 100, right? So I assume I've There's cried 50 in 50. Yeah. yeah, like I'm a... I actually warned Steve ahead of time that I was like, listen, dude, I'm going to cry. Like, just push through, okay? There's nothing you can do about it. Let it happen. Let it go. <laughs> um, so once again, guys, if you're looking for Steve, you can find him on YouTube at Steve Lato. Um, so that's L-E-H-T-O. Uh, and you can also find him at LatoLaw.com. Go ahead and look at some of his articles and books. He's utterly fantastic. Uh, now, Jeffrey, is this show called This Podcast is crushing, Soul Crushing? This podcast is Labor Law Issues. <laughs> this podcast is Righteous Indignation. This podcast will radicalize you and your children. <laughs> no, we don't call it that. <laughs> no, we call it This Podcast is Haunted. The bad Please news about me. the haunting of the Italian Hall disaster. Uh-huh. The Italian Hall is gone. Ah. The building itself has been torn down. Okay. Um, the gateway, the, the door frame, rather, it looks like a gateway because now it's in a public park, mm-hmm. does remain. And Steve Lato actually wrote the like historic marker for it. Oh, There was a nice. correction that needed to be made. And he was able to correct the historic record with evidence that he found. Wow. I know. Oh, I love a good... Uh, you know, well-intentioned, well-actually. Real talk. He's like my hero. It's really cool. Okay. <laughs> this is really awesome. Yeah. Um, so anyways, the Calumet Opera House is just down the street. The Opera House is not the same as the Italian Hall. The Italian Hall is no longer there. Okay. But there were so this many bodies. This is me nodding along. <laughs> fully have not listened to the... Another peek behind the curtain. Would you stop pulling back the curtain and just let people have the <laughs> illusion? Okay. I'm just like, yes, I remember this now. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So many people died during the Italian Hall disaster that mm. they did not have enough space in the morgue for the bodies that had accumulated. Fuck. So the bodies were removed to other areas locally mm-hmm. uh, so that they would have time to be properly put to rest and investigated. Well, properly investigated. Just you wait. You'll hear. Mm. The proper investigations never happen. Mm-hmm. But also they did not happen. It's interesting. Um, so anyways, the these bodies needed to go somewhere, and they went down the street, some of them, to what is known as the Calumet Opera House, the Calumet Theater. Now that is, is this, still there. Is this a haunted theater? Yes, it is. <gasps> I know. You would see Our one. bread and butter. Oh. I love a haunted theater. Yes. So this haunted theater, um, most of the victims of the Italian Hall disaster, as we just heard, were children. Oh. A lot of kids. So many dead children, Jen. I can't wait for you to listen. <laughs> that sounds bad. Um, <laughs> no, don't don't take. That's not the full quote we want. Right, right, yeah. But leave uh, it well, in. It's not. Mm. Leave it in. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, these bodies are taken about a block away to be sorted and claimed and identified and processed. And that, while not the site of the trauma, 
still leaves an indelible mark. Mm-hmm. And of course, they think those children are now haunting the Calumet Theater. Oh my God, the spookiest kind. Exactly. <gasps> they have heard children laughing. No. And they've heard playing. No. <laughs> and allegedly, no. on Christmas Eve, they hear the screaming again. Fuck. Okay, so that's, that's still there. You can go see see it, uh-huh. possibly get the chills yourself. Uh-huh. It's so upsetting. It's Do they so upsetting. Sing little songs. I can't little creepy children songs. I, I can't say for sure, but that would have been very common type it's of play for the time. That can't be spoken. <laughs> Jeffrey. All right. Well, speaking of being insufferable, (laughs) do you have a listener story for us? I do. Don't put that on the same sentence as our dear listener stories. Touche. All right. So we have, uh, we have a lovely listener story from Allie. Um, Oh, it's a it's a fellow podcaster. Oh, hey, Allie. We'll get to that. Um, mm, mm, mm. Last name's not Ward, is it? No. Damn it. Uh, sadly, no. Um, but still lovely to hear from you, Allie. Um, Allie says, hey, lovely humans. Firstly, thanks for your amazing podcast. I love the mix of history, ghosts, community, and a healthy dose of fuck throughout. <laughs> Emphasis mine. Uh, it really is a break when I'm struggling with life. Uh, I saved the episodes from last year uh, because I couldn't run out during quarantine. Feel that. Uh, I just started catching up as we slowly moved back to normal. When I heard your episode of Roman Ghosts, I thought you might be interested in my story. Cool. Mm. Yes, Rome. That was a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed recording that. Was very that was fun. So before grad school, I decided to move to Italy for three <sighs> months because when else would I have the time to in life? Word. Literally every time someone mentions spending a semester in Italy, all I think of is Amanda Knox. <laughs> so... Oh, no. I'm glad you're okay. (laughs) Anyway, um, I had majored in Italian in undergrad, so I figured, why the fuck not? I spent time living in Rome and exploring the rest of Italy. That sounds idyllic. Um, As someone who loves spooky stuff, I tried to find all the weird history and seen as many spooky places as I could. Let's be friends, Allie. I know. Side note, that that may be important. I also happen to be the great-granddaughter of a town psychic. Yes! <gasps> oh, God, our listeners are so fucking cool. I know, you're so much cooler than we are. Signet, like, they should all have shows. What the fuck are what we are doing? What are we doing? Okay, who even the doctor went to for advice. Awesome. Badass. Sadly, I have inherited none of these skills, <laughs> other than having a few weird experiences or seeing some ghosts. Hey, that's valid. Yeah. We see you. I have... Little to zero experience in, in this field that I am, uh, you know. And I might not have any experience at all. Oh. I could be wrong about all of my stuff. That's, I mean, Great yeah. Great for Yeah, for real. Anyway, uh, most of Rome felt very normal. Of course, the catacombs, a part of Castel Sant'Angelo, where Emperor Hadrian was buried. Cool. And days like... The... Of the wall. Yeah, I, I know. Just checking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that Hadrian... Oh. <laughs> yes. I know that from my UK history, not, you know, sure. my yeah, no, he's Roman important history. Then. But, yeah. Um, and days like, days like the Ides of March were spooky. But overall, the city really just feels like a modern and lived in. Yeah. Nothing too spooky or abnormal. And I agree. Rome is a fairly normal city. I'll go someday. It is, it is beautiful. 
One day, when I was wandering the streets, visiting every church that I passed, I happened to be walking down the Corso, uh, Corso Vittorio Emmanuel II, a major street, and saw a cute gray church on the corner. There is a fountain and a bus stop out front, but otherwise it isn't very busy. So I escape the heat and walk into the Santa Maria in Vallicella Church. Right? Yeah. Vallicella. I took a semester of Italian. I'm an expert. I wander <laughs> up near... That's me. Uh, I wander up near the predella and sit down in a pew and kneel. Closing my eyes to pray, things get weird. I am already kneeling with my hands on the back of the pew in front of me but I suddenly feel like I'm falling face forward into nothing. Ooh, I feel that sometimes. A little bit of vertigo. Yeah. If I'm, like, laying in bed and close my eyes and, like, think about it too hard, I can, like, convince myself that I'm, like, falling. falling. Yeah. yeah. Brains are amazing. Mm-hmm. It's creepy. Um, super dizzy, dizzy and thinking I might faint, I open my eyes, but the church is completely normal. A few visitors are wandering, but... But it's mostly just quiet. So I close my eyes again and immediately feel like I'm falling into darkness. Uh, Ass over tea kettle. (laughs) (laughs) Great phrase. And this is something I feel in my whole body. Uh, When I fainted before, my head feels dizzy, but this feels like my whole body is sinking into free fall. While I know it was in my head, the feeling was so realistic that I was convinced in the moment that I was really falling. I grab the pew for support, and as soon as I open my eyes, I'm just left with a little uh, queasiness. A little weirded out, I sit back in the pew and look around. It is a beautiful church, but very typical for the area. There's beautiful stonework, several stunning paintings, and ornate details all around it. Uh, matches many other Italian churches from the 1500s. You know, casual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Eventually, I'm bored and less dizzy, so I decide to walk around and check out the alcoves that made up the perimeter of the church. The walls and floors around the central seating area are carved with the name of prominent priests or people who went to the church. Most have birth and death death dates, names, and maybe a small inscription. I know a lot about churches and have many. I know a lot of churches have many bodies in them. Uh, but I'm sure, uh, but I'm not sure if the bodies were there for each of these. Either way, these stones are pretty similar to rectangular headstones. After so many years, uh, some are faded, so I'm just running my hand along the wall, feeling the letters as I pass by. I move past one alcove and place my hand on a wall like I have several times before, and suddenly it feels like I was electrocuted. Oh. Ooh. Like a surge went through my entire body. I have no idea what the fuck it was. I look for exposed wiring as if there's going to be some janky electric coming out of the middle of basically a tombstone in the wall. Like you do. I mean, hey, you never know. Right. (laughs) Um, There's nothing. There's no water on the wall or ground or anything weird going on. I touch the wall several times more and there's nothing other than the faint buzz left over in my hand. To this day, I have no idea what happened. I even looked it up, and as far as I can tell, these stones cannot carry electricity. I mean, depending on how... I might be wrong about this. Okay. I am not a physicist. (laughs) But I feel like if you're walking and running your hand along the stone, there's a possibility to pick up a charge, depending on the atmosphere. Well, there's, like, static electricity, but I don't think that happens, like... When you're wearing sho- like shoes with presumably like a rubberish sole, on sure it does. You've stuff. never done that, like gotten shocked while you're wearing shoes. I've gotten shocked while like running around my house and 
socks. Like, okay, so, like, one of the big things, and I'm always wearing shoes at the gas station. Okay. I think we can just set that up as fair. Um, One of the big things that my father always pushed on us, Mm -hmm. um, and and it has happened to me in the winter, Mm. when you get out of your car, make sure you touch the metal of your car Mm. before you touch the gas pump. Okay. Because the friction of sliding your ass across the seat, even Mm -hmm. with your rubber shoes on, on the ground, Mm -hmm. uh, creates a charge that you need to dispel before you touch the metal. I mean, I've gotten shocked from my car several times, so I guess that must be it. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying that's what happened. Uh Um, I will also say that I think in, because I've also had that like, oh, I'm praying and you feel like you're falling forward. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of those mysteries of the divine. You know, like, I'm not saying necessarily the church has it right or whatever, or that everybody connects the same way. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when I would feel like that, or at least what I think she's feeling, Mm -hmm. uh, in group prayer, when, like, everybody's, like, holding hands, I would feel like I have, like, a current running through me and that I was falling forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you could could interpret that in a kind of secular way, too, of, like, it's energy yeah or just meditation basically yeah i and just you can kind of kind of lose touch with your immediate senses exactly mm-hmm. exactly and maybe that's what was happening here yeah quite possibly um do 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 there's a grief that can't not be spoken <laughs> sorry guys if you're not on that side of tiktok i don't know what to tell you um we're obnoxious <laughs> but that's not news to you <laughs> I visited this church several more times to see if this would happen again. While I always felt slightly dizzy and like something was off, nothing as strange happened again. But I looked into the history of the church, but nothing in particular stands out. I wish I could say that I found something to explain it or at least make the story more interesting, but that's the weirdest experience I had in Rome. I swear Ohio feels more haunted than Rome, though it could be from my childhood. Anyway, (laughs) thanks for reading. (laughs) Wait. Tell us more. Wait. What? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Drop what? that little nugget at the end, do you? All right, all right, all right. Um, uh, I'm sorry for blabbering on. Never. Uh, Don't apologize you, for that. We love yeah. it. Come back with Ohio stories, apparently. Um, if you ever want stories of a haunted nunnery we went to as yes, kids in we... Ireland, what? <laughs> we want those. What? Please give us those stories, Allie. Yeah. Um... Uh, my best friend's haunted childhood home with a sex room. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> or my own childhood home. That is so similar to Haunting of Hill House that my mom bawled her eyes out of the last episode because of how much it reminded her of our 1800s terror house. Let me... Yes, we want those stories, Allie. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you tease? Yeah, big old tease. All right. Uh, so until next time, I will say uh, thanks for sharing so many weird stories, histories, and laughs, Allie, from the On the Road with Supernatural podcast. Oh, cool! Yeah. On the Road with Supernatural will be your podcast friends. Carry on my wayward son. Uh, that's a reference to that show. <laughs> I know. Okay, <laughs> just making sure. All right, everybody. Jen's a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> She has to get out of here to go play D&D. What a nerd. Oh, blowing up my spot. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. Huge, I play d and I'm a huge D&D nerd now, guys. She's going to homebrew her own campaign. So yeah. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Girl, you're in it. Oh, I'm in it? Yeah, I know. Oh. If you want to be. Um, it's very hard to schedule with me. My current D&D campaign can't get old of me, but that's let's fair. try. Okay, so um, let me just double check to see if we have any. Patrons. <laughs> Nope, All right. 
All right. Well, I think that's all we've got for today. Let's let you go so you can go um, Be orc a huge smash something. Fucking nerd. You're um, not an orc. What are you? I am. I am a high elf wizard named Haley, and she is a basic white bitch, but she's also a necromancer. So, hey, she's really into true crime. Can I tell you something? What? I've never loved you more. Thanks. <laughs> All right, get out of my house. Love you. Uh, God, we have a sign up. So if we, <laughs> if you want to check us out on Patreon, we are on right. Patreon slash patreon.com slash this podcast is haunted feel f- please feel free to give us money it all goes almost all goes to danny yeah it, um, some of it will go to what will be a sweet new mic setup for us so we can podcast from, from the, the couch, couch. <laughs> no more uncomfortable chairs and i can't sit up that long <laughs> and i'm lazy yeah uh so yeah if you want to check us out there we do monthly videos um we still have to do one this month but that's what you all know and expect from us at this point um and we also have social media that is listed below i'm trying to be better about it but you know how it is and as always you can meet us in the group guys uh that is definitely where we are the most active is within our facebook group this podcast is haunted discussion group uh where the best people on the internet Mm -hmm. are yep run by the indelible what's i don't know run by tiff who's just amazing we love you tiff we love you so much tiff um and with that Stay spooky, motherfuckers! Goddamn right. Happy spooky season. Happy first day of fall! (gasps) Special. Very special. Okay, bye. Alright, bye! (laughs)